And while you do that, I um, just want to encourage you guys who are regulars here to um, continue giving um, yeah, as it helps church to keep going and it helps us to keep um, growing as Christians. Now, if you're um, new, um, yeah, it's great to have you here. You're our guest. Um, yeah, and so we don't want your money. We're just happy to have you here. <laughs> okay, Exodus chapter 19, verse 10 to 12. And the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day, because on that day the Lord will come to Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them and tell them be careful that you do not approach the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain is to be put to death. Okay, let's go to sixteen to nineteen. On the morning of the third day there was a thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke, because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. Okay, let's flick over to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18 to 29. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to trumpet, blast, or to switch of, to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them, because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it, that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, once more I will shake only, not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. 
Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful, and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Well, very good. Uh, who has been away on a camp this week, and Who's exhausted? You, you. <laughs> Were they good? Good weekends? Well, the one weekend at your different things. Yeah, good. Well, what I want to, um, I want to talk to you about the Bible together tonight. We're going to dig into the Word of God. Uh, and as we look at it, I'm, I'm going to pray in just a moment. As we look at it, we're going to be touching on a topic, the topic of fear. And I want you just in a moment to talk together about fear, so just to be alert to this. But how about I pray and I'll give you some thoughts and we'll get you talking. Let's uh, pray. Father, we do ask that you would bless this time in the midst of uh, all the business and uh, tiredness and stresses and so on, and distractions even perhaps with marriage coming up, we pray please that you might help us pay attention to your word and uh, read, reflect and deeply engage with what you have to say and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the topic of fear, uh, I want to talk to you about fear. Fear is one of those topics that um, kind of comes in for a bit of bad press. There's uh, most stuff you do when uh, you talk to people about fear is a lot of the conversation goes around the things that you, ought to, that you are afraid of, you should learn to get over being afraid of. You should be anxious about that or afraid of that kind of thing. Uh, a lot of that happens. But there are some things you ought to be afraid of and it's one of the things uh, for, I don't know, 15-year-olds, 16-year-olds as, as people grow up and so on, um, in, into our mature age, that there, there's things they need to learn to, to be afraid of, that they're not afraid of, that they're not properly afraid of. And I want you just to reflect on that uh, for a moment together. What, what can you think of as some things that really need to be told to younger people uh, or perhaps peers and so on that they're not afraid of, they really should be afraid of. Does that make sense? Can you work it out? Go for it. What, what should people be afraid of? Just in, not, not in Christian terms, but just in, in go for it, talk. That'll do. Does everyone understand the question? It's too late now, really, anyway, isn't it? But uh, what, what, what are people not afraid of that they should learn to be more afraid of? That's actually a good thing. What, what have you got for me? This is not, don't give me Christian answers. I don't want those Christian answers. <laughs> Interest rates. Yeah. 14 year old, you need to start paying attention. It's good. Yeah. What else you got? Yeah, the sun. <laughs> Pay attention to slip, slop, slap. Yeah. I'm waiting for them all bust out on me. But yeah, that's right. It's too late for me. I just go for it now. <laughs> I've got a 92-year-old. He can just sit in the sun all he likes. Something else will kill him. What do you got? Making poor, you should be afraid of making poor relationship choices. There you go, yeah. You're not commenting on marriage at that point, are you? Yeah. You made a good relationship choice, that's right, yeah. 
but yeah, yeah, uh, 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 this kind of the stage of life is a life stage where you're making relationship choices and uh, they will have an impact. Make, be, be very concerned about the ones you make, make right ones. Yep, what else you got? <laughs> wow. Don't jump into shallow water, I think I heard that. Yes, be afraid of uh, what's underneath the surface. So what do you, yep, yep. That's a doctor talking. Eye doctor. What's that got to do with eye doctors? But anyway, there you go. Don't whippersnip without eye protection. Don't be afraid of what might happen if you whippersnip without eye protection, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Recognise that choices will have consequences and bad choices will bring bad consequences. Yeah, be afraid of that, yep. I heard someone over here. Addictions. Addictions. Be... be, um, be afraid of choices you make that can move you down towards being uh, captivated, captured by um, addictions that will take charge of your life. Yeah, be afraid of what that path will take you on. I was, I was going to do a whole thing on fear and the philosophy of fear until... Um, so yesterday I was thinking about all of this and kind of preparing for today, as I do uh, um, at various times, and I walked upstairs to the kitchen and one of my eldest uh, sons and his wife were there and uh, they were sitting around the kitchen bench and my wife was doing something, Kathy was doing something in the kitchen and she'd got some chunks of banana bread and stuck them into the toaster, pushed the toaster down and, uh, you know, the lights blinking on fire, you know, doing its thing, doing its thing, cooking. And, what, and she went to click it up and it got stuck. So it's still down, it's still on. So what does she do? She goes to the, goes to the cutlery drawer, grabs a knife, or a steel knife, right, a metal knife, and, and comes over to the, to the toaster. And while the kids are watching, she slowly, she starts to put the knife down into the toaster to pull the banana bread out. And it, it all went in slow motion at that point because my, my grown-up uh, adult children are, are starting to react with this sense of, hooray, the inheritance is coming soon. <laughs> <laughs> um, we, we won't, we, we'll be able to move into the house. We've always wanted to live in this house, but uh, if it doesn't burn down. But see, what, there, they were, there was this impalpable, palpable sense of fear, uh, real fear. I, I was thinking, man, when you were 15, you didn't give a hoot what we did with knives and toasters, but now you care about it. It's very good. And they, they said, Mom, stop it. And she's going, what are you talking about? <laughs> my wife and she said I'm careful I'm just putting it right in the piece and I'll bring it out um, it's if you're not aware of this you need to be afraid of metal you need to be afraid of sitting in the bath and drying your hair with a hairdryer there's some things you need to be afraid of you see and here's the point I want to make um, fear comes in for a bad kind of press in recent times and that we don't want to be people who are afraid of anything you know we want to we want to learn to understand enough and get enough information so that we can get on top of everything and not ever live with fear because fear is such a negative emotion and sometimes we can bring that into the Christian realm the spiritual realm and imagine in the spiritual realm mature Christianity is the kind of Christianity that has no fears do you, do you know we don't live with fear that's um, primitive and immature and there are many uh, Christian circles where the whole notion that Christians might be afraid of anything is, is dismissed. Uh, the things of God are not things to be afraid of at all. But what I want to draw your attention to tonight is that this part of the Bible, uh, Hebrews chapter 12, the end of Hebrews chapter 12, speaks a lot about fear. And it's actually a very important emotion to cultivate, understand and develop. Fear. Uh, in fact, he uses the very, he almost uses the word in the second last verse of chapter 12. Have a look at verse 28. Let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence 
and... Now, the NIV says the word awe, but in the original language, you could translate that word as the word fear, and in some other translations, it is translated as the word fear. To, to worship God acceptably with reverence and fear. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of God. Fear actually has a part in all that this preacher is talking about. In fact, I've mentioned this a number of times. This is a book of the Bible, yes, written in the first century, but it's a record of a first century sermon. And what we have in chapter 12 is the preacher coming to the end of his sermon. Chapter 13 has some odds and ends, we'll look at that next week, but really the sermon comes to its great climax in chapter 12. It's where he finally lands his big ideas. And a lot of the themes that he's been developing all the way through the letter, the book, the sermon, come together in this final uh, section, chapter 12. And, and a lot of it, is a, it rolls around the idea of fear. That this is a deeply important emotion for Christians to cultivate. That it matters that you be people who have a sense of fear about right things. Let me give you a sense of it. There's three sections I want to show you through this part of the Bible, from verse 14 down to the end of the chapter. I'm going to only look at the first and third section quickly. The second, the middle section, I'll spend a great deal more time on. So the first section, let me just give you a touch on this. Look at verse 15. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See to it that you don't lose the things of Christ. Be afraid of the consequences of losing Christ. That's what he's playing on here. He gives an illustration of Esau, who sold, verse 16, sold his inheritance rights, as the older son, for a meal. A single, he was so hungry, he said to his brother, I'll give you the rights of the firstborn. You can take the promise of God, the covenantal promise of God. You can have it. Just give me something to eat. He was so captivated by what was in front of him, by the visible. He was seduced by his own, his own hungers and appetites uh, that he gave up the eternal for the sake of the immediate. And he says, don't be like that. Because look at verse 17. Afterwards, when he realised the mistake he'd made, when he wanted to come back and inherit, uh, he was rejected, even though he sought the blessing with tears. He could not, literally what the original language says, he could not be brought back to repentance. He could not be brought back to repent. And, and the writer is saying, these things are deeply serious. Uh, he's been developing this all the way through, and he's going to hit it again for us. He's been developing it all the way through, that outside of Jesus, there's no hope. Outside of Jesus, there's there's the, it is a dreadful thing, he says, to fall into the hands of the living God, unprotected, unforgiven. It's something to be afraid of, to fear the consequences. Do you know, you can drive and you can text while you're driving. There's all kinds of news around about the consequences of the, the, that foolish choice because of the distraction that occurs, an accident that happens, and the lifetime consequences that you'll live with. Be afraid of that. But he says it's nothing on the fear of the consequences of being outside of Christ. There's the first section. You see how he's, he's plucking on the notion of fear. But then he comes to the second section, verse 18 to 24. And in this second section, we're going to spend a little bit longer on this one. It, 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 in this, he focuses, not on, he focuses not so much on fear, but rather he focuses on the blessings that they have in Christ. But then he turns to the issue of fear and the fear of losing it. 
He focuses on the blessings that they have in Christ and he does it in a really quite remarkable way, a way that's hard to do justice to. He does it by comparing and contrasting two religious experiences. The religious experience people had under the old covenant, the Jewish people, what they were as Israelites, compared with the, the religious experience of God you can have in Jesus. So he compares these two religious experiences and he does it by um, using this poetic image, this kind of symbolic image of mountains. So he talks there in verse 18, um, effectively, he doesn't use this word, but it's the mountain, the mountain of Sinai. Now, you know it's that mountain because of the reading we had from Exodus chapter 19 and Deuteronomy 4, where we, we have recorded for us Israel in ancient times, comes out of Egypt, they're rescued out of Egypt, if you've heard of the word the Exodus under Moses, uh, they come out of Egypt uh, by the leadership of Moses as God leads them uh, to himself on the mountain, the mountain of Sinai, Mount Sinai. And uh, Israel comes to this mountain and a gathered assembled around the mountain with God uh, presenting himself on the top of the mountain. That's the place where God gave the Ten Commandments. You might have heard of um, Moses coming down the mountain with two tablets with the Ten Commandments inscribed on them. That's when that occurred. He, he talks about Mount Sinai and the experience, the religious experience of coming to Mount Sinai. In verse 22, he compares that to Mount Zion. Now, Mount Zion is another mountain. These are both literal mountains. Mount Zion is one of the hills upon which Jerusalem is built. Uh, it's not a very big mountain, actually, but it's one of the hills upon which Jerusalem is built. So, but two, two literal mountains. And what he says about them is deeply important. I want to spend a bit of time on this. He's, he's, he's using these mountains as a way of talking about two ways of coming to God. Two religious options that you can pursue, you see. And he talks about those that came to God at Mount Sinai. Um, they came to, look at verse 18, I mean, he says, you have not come to that, you've come to Mount Zion, but the, the Israelites, they came to a mountain that could be touched, that was burning with fire, to darkness, gloom and storm, to a trumpet blast and such a voice speaking that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight of it was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. Now, just a quick, quick comprehension question. If you were to capture the emotion that they were feeling at that point as they came to Mount Sinai, what's the word for the emotion that they were feeling? It's a pretty easy one. Fear. Fear. Um, the sight was so terrifying, Moses said, I am trembling with fear. It's a real religious experience that conjured up darkness, gloom, storm, fear. It then talks about this other religious experience, verse 22, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. You have come to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now, there's much more to be thought about with this other mountain, but if there is an emotion that captures it, what might you offer? What's the emotion of those that are captured up in this one? 
It's the emotion, I think, of the angels. Joy, yeah, I think it's joy. So what you have is two religious experiences, one that brings fear and oppression and gloom and darkness, and the other one that brings joy and access and openness and engagement. Two very different religious experiences. Now, what he's talking about here is that the Mount Sinai experience is the religious experience that Israel had under the Old Covenant. And in a very clever way, what he does is he, he picks up all the themes that he's been talking about through the book of Hebrews. If you've been with us over this time, you will remember those themes. The, you know, the Old Covenant of law, uh, sacrifice, priest and so on. And he's capturing all that up to say that Mount Sinai stands for that religious experience under the Old Covenant. It stands for coming to God on the basis of works, on the basis of law-keeping, earning His favour. Whereas Mount Zion stands for the experience of coming under the New Covenant by the blood of Jesus. See, reflect with me just for a moment there, verse 24. You see, you've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. See, he's explicit. Old covenant, new covenant. You've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now, now what does that mean? How does the sprinkled blood of Jesus speak a better word than the blood of Abel? Well, you need a little bit of history. Um, Abel, Abel, we're going all the way back now to early parts, chapters of Genesis, Adam and Eve, uh, they have some sons, Cain and Abel, and uh, Cain, in jealousy, a, jealousy fit, a jealous fit against his brother Abel, kills him, uh, hated that he was favoured, and kills his son Abel. And it's said that the blood of Abel, that's spilt by Cain, cries out to God, now, have you got a sense of what that blood might have cried out to God saying? I'll, I'll just, just think for a moment. What, what does the blood of Abel cry? What does God hear when he sees the blood of Abel? Well, let me offer what I think it is. I think the blood of Abel cries out to God for justice, for the one who committed this crime to be punished, for the sinner to be condemned. Uh, vengeance cries the blood of Abel. What does the blood of Jesus cry out from the grave? What's the sprinkled blood of Jesus cry out to God? It cries out to God, have mercy on them. Don't treat them as they deserve. Forgive them. Bring the promised new covenant of mercy to those that deserve condemnation. Don't treat them as they deserve. The blood of Jesus speaks a better word. And this religious experience under the new covenant is to come to Mount Zion, to a better covenant, to a new covenant, to a better word, to a word that speaks mercy and grace and love and acceptance. Whereas the word that was spoken from Mount Sinai was the word of do this or you're dead. Keep this law or you're condemned. It was a word they couldn't cope with hearing any further. You know, there's a, there's a quick overview of these two religious, religious experiences, but I want to make some further observations. Let me make a couple of observations, give some applications, and then go bigger, if that helps you understand where we're going. Let me give you some further observations. Firstly, some more differences. The, the, the difference between Mount Sinai and Mount Zion 
is that Mount Sinai is physical and on earth and Mount Zion is in heaven. Or it's the home and throne of God himself, whether heaven or not. Uh, You see, look what he says there, verse 18. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched. See, he's speaking to these Christians who've come to Jesus and he's saying to them, if you've come to Mount Zion, you've not come to that old mountain, the mountain that can be touched. You've come to a mountain that can't be touched because you've come to Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem. Yes, it was a hill in Jerusalem, but that's that's a picture of a whole new home of God. You have come to the city of God. You have come to the very place that God dwells himself in unapproachable light. You have come to the living God. And it's a beautiful picture to convey this truth that under the old covenant, the covenant of law, um, God comes to us on earth. He is here, but he's fenced off. He's distant. The temple was an evidence that God was among Israel and also distant from Israel. And so he, he's here with him, us, but not. But what you have here being said for those who have come by Jesus to God is that he has not just come to us, he has come to take us home with him, to where he dwells. We have been welcomed into the very city of God itself, the kingdom that cannot be shaken, What a blessing it happens to the person who comes in Christ. The old covenant versus the new. Another difference between these two is that the the experience of coming to God at Mount Sinai was to come in a relationship with God on an earth that is shakeable. Mount Sinai shook and one day will be completely shaken and undone and destroyed, the earth that we sit on. It feels so solid, but it's insubstantial. It'll be destroyed. It'll be burnt with fire. The heavens will be destroyed even as created places. But what happens when you come to Mount Zion, the heavenly city, you're brought to a place that can never be shaken, that is eternal, that is the very throne of God himself. Stability, confidence and certainty. The difference between the two words... Uh, at Mount Sinai, we hear a word that terrifies, commands, you can't keep. But in the gospel, in the new covenant, you hear a word that soothes, that comforts, that speaks of love. It's a better word, the blood of Abel. They were terrified. They didn't feel all warm and embraced. They felt condemned. But the word of Jesus, the word of the blood of Jesus says, I have done it for you, forgiven. Your soul is cleansed by my blood, purified. And in fact, this is is how you come into this Mount Zion. This is how you come to the city of God. You come to the city of God by a mediator, the Lord Jesus, who does it for you, by by coming to him and recognising I'm unworthy, I can't keep the commands, I can't keep up, I can't perform, I can't ever do enough. And you come to the Lord Jesus and you throw yourself on his mercy and say, help me a sinner. And he reaches down and he says, you're exactly the person I love to help. 
I delight to lift you and have you home with me. Welcome. That's how you come, by throwing yourself on his mercy. Let me make a couple of further observations and come back to the difference between these two. I want to make a particular further observation. In verse 22, I want you to notice the tenses. Do you see he says, do you remember past, present, future tense? Do you remember the tenses? Well, I want you to notice verse 22. You have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. What tense is that in? Past, present or future? kind of past-ish, isn't it? It's kind of perfect. It's, it's a, you have come and are now there. Now you reflect on that with me. What is that saying? Well, it is actually giving us a very deep and profound insight into church, this thing happening now. Because what the author is saying is that when you come to Jesus and throw yourself on his mercy... And when you receive him as the mediator whose blood covers you and cleanses you and and accepts you into heaven, what happens at that moment is that you, physical though you are, are raised by the Holy Spirit into the heavens with Jesus. It's an extraordinary thing the Bible talks about elsewhere in Colossians chapter 3 and other places where when Jesus dies and then rises again to life and then ascends to the Father's right hand in heaven by the Holy Spirit of God. So the Holy Spirit's not about speaking in tongues. Don't get caught up on that nonsense. The Holy Spirit has a far more important role in your life. The Holy Spirit's role is to unite you, your spirit, your life with Jesus so that where Jesus goes, you go. That Jesus has been raised from the grave, raised from dead, you have been raised with him. That he ascends to the Father's right hand in the city of God, you have been raised now with him. So that by faith in Jesus, you now sit in two places. You sit here physically, but by the Holy Spirit of God, you are spiritually seated in the heavenly realms. You are gathered with thousands, right this moment, You are gathered with thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. You are part of the heavenly assembly's joy and thrill at the conquest of the Son of God who died for you to make you a kingdom of priests to serve and love him forever whose cross and blood shed was victorious. You know, right at this moment in the heavenlies, in the city of God, There is a celebration the universe participates in. There is joy unbounded. And you are part of that right now. That's where you are. You were gathered to that city. You have been brought to the church of the firstborn, the Lord Jesus, the firstborn from dead, whose names are written in heaven. You are being brought to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. That is to every other believer in history who has been made perfect by the blood of Christ, they are there as well. And you, by the Spirit of God, are with them in heaven. You are seated there by the Spirit. You have been brought to this mediator of a new covenant and you enjoy the word that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now, all of that is a wonderful truth to believe about yourself. You know it not by by sight, but by faith. But here, let me give you one of the consequences of it. What is church? 
What is this thing? Now, the word church is actually the Greek word ecclesia, and the word ecclesia means assembly, assembly gathering. It doesn't mean a building, it means an assembly of people. What is church? Church is an assembly of Christians gathered together around the better word, the word of the gospel. But here's the deal, what is church? We are, right now, the visible expression of the invisible reality that is functioning in eternity. There is right now a joyful assembly in the city of God. Thousands upon thousands and the saints who have gone before us, rejoicing in the things of Christ, partying, if you like. And you can have a piece of that. Do you know, there's a way for that invisible, eternal celebration to be experienced now. And it's when Christians make visible that invisible. And we make visible that invisible when we assemble together around the Word of God. When we gather together to hear the declaration of the blood of Jesus. And we sing and pray to that God who has done so much for us. Why church? Well, you come to church for a number of reasons. You come to love one another, to hear from God. You come to stir one another to love and good deeds. It's an expression of love. But you come to church because every time you come to church, you give visible expression to who we are. We give visible expression to that invisible reality. That is, who you, you are gathered one to Christ. And so you gather physically to give expression. You see what I'm saying? This event is a profoundly special moment. as It's, a, it's the in-breaking into the visible, physical world of an eternal, special reality that exists for all time. It's a great blessing and a wonderful thing to be here. And so, make sure you are here. Well, I'm preaching to the choir at this point because you are here, aren't I? But uh, make it a lifetime habit to see how much it matters to be here. I was uh, talking about some of these things this morning and I, um, I was talking with a man who must be, gee, he must be almost 80 do you know how old that is? That is very old. And uh, I don't know how you're still walking around, but he's 80. And um, he, he's been a Christian, I dare say, from his 20s. So 60 years a Christian. And he is still passionate about the things of Christ. And what was lovely was to, he grabbed me at the end of the service and he said, it is so thrilling to think that week by week we give expression to that invisible reality. It's so, my heart thrilled to hear you talk about it. Isn't that beautiful? Make it your lifetime habit to participate in this special experience that doesn't always feel special. But it is true by faith that that's the case. Um, now, why did the author, the preacher, give all of this to this people? Why did he teach them this stuff? Well, I want to suggest as the sermon's coming to an end, a sermon that's all about making sure they persevere in the Christian faith and don't fall away, I think he's saying to them basically, here's what you are, see the precious thing that you've got in Christ, see how amazing it is that you've got under this new covenant, don't go back. Don't go back to Judaism. Don't go back to the old covenant, there's nothing there for you. Just death and gloom and fear. Don't go back. And I think he's trying to create a sense of fear. The fear of consequences of losing Christ. But there's a sense in which he's teaching something more general than just Jews, don't leave Jesus and go back to Judaism. 
I think he is also giving us a lesson about every religion on the planet. So think with me about this. So there's not just Judaism and Christianity, there's Islam, there's Buddhism, there's Hinduism, there's Rastafarianism, all kinds of different religions around the world. And you might think to yourself, gee, they're all very different, I should explore them to find out what they all teach before I make a decision about any one of them. Um, they're all very different, but here's the thing, they're not very different at all. The, the, the only religions that are different are New Covenant Christianity, Jesus, and every other religion. Because every other religion is actually the same as each other. Yeah, they look different in that Judaism has 10 commandments you're meant to keep. Um, uh, Buddhism has the eightfold path that you're meant to keep. Islam has the five noble truths that you're meant to obey. There are all kinds of different shape to them. But when you boil them down, they're all saying the same thing, which is this. If you want to get to God or paradise, you, you have to keep these things. If you want to get where you're going, whichever, however it's formed, it's up to you. It's up to your performance. It's up to how well you do, how much you do, whether you do it well enough. It's about works. That is to say, it's exactly the same as Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai stands not just for Judaism under the Old Covenant, it stands for every religion outside of Jesus. Mount Sinai is a way of coming to God based on works. My performance, my ability. Have I done enough? Have I prayed enough? Have I given enough? Have I loved enough? Have I served enough? And let me tell you this, if you live under that dispensation, if you live under the Mount Sinai religious experience, whatever the religion is, it is oppressive. It creates fear and uncertainty and instability because you can never know you've done enough. It's like living with a parent that you can never please. God becomes a taskmaster who speaks words you don't want to hear because they're just oppressive and terrifying and hurtful. Whereas grace... The blood of Jesus that speaks a better word is that he's done it all for you. Do you know, living under the Mount Sinai experience is knowing there's a great exam at the end of my life to get into heaven. I don't know if I'm going to pass. I don't know if I've done enough study. New Covenant Christianity says, Jesus has sat the exam for you and if you ask him, he'll give you his marks. Oh, freedom. Forgiveness, graciously received a gift. You see, two mountains talk about two different ways of approaching God. Mount Sinai, do, perform, earn, it's up to you, the pressure's on you. Mount Zion, the blood of Jesus, who covers and cleanses and forgives. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, well, look, I'm not even following any religion, um, the, the secular media is very keen to tell us that no one's actually interested in religion anymore. We've all become irreligious and have no religion and we're just into spirituality and so on. But think about this with me. This is a conversation I have very regularly with people who aren't religious. I say to them, uh, do you believe there's a God? My friend says, yes. I say, do you think he'll accept you when you die? And my friend says, 
I believe as long as you're a good person, you'll go to heaven, whatever heaven is. I say, have you always been good? And my friend says, no, not always, but I try to be good. So I say, oh, so it's, you're in if you try to be good, not be good. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, have you always tried to be good? Well, no, I've not always tried to be good, but I try to always try to be good. Oh, so the standard's quite different from where we started now, isn't it? Do you always try to try to be good? Well, no, but I want to try. I want to be that person who tries. Do you always? No. And we just go down further and further. And in the end, they say, I've had enough of this conversation. (laughs) And I say, you need to look at Jesus. Because he gives you a very different way. If he is who he says he is, then it's not about you being good at all. Because none of us can be. None of us can keep whatever standard we set for ourselves. It'll be different for different ages. For a 20-something age, it'll be, have I cared about causes enough? Have I been against racism like I ought? Have I made sure I've never spoken about people of colour that were in a wrong? It'll be these kinds of standard and expectations, but I tell you what, you'll have failed them, whatever they are. None of us have any hope by the basis of performance and rights and, and, and law do religion is full of fear and you know why it was so terrifying particularly when Israel came to that mountain it was terrifying particularly because at that point a group of human sinners like you and me actually saw God in all his holiness the terror of Mount Sinai was that they were actually brought face to face with the true and living God in all his power, holiness, purity, might and strength. And it broke them because they saw how far short they were. Do you know, modern spiritualists often talk about having had an experience of the divine and it always goes along these lines of how warm it was, accepting and tolerant, he's happy for us to be whoever we want to be. That's just me projecting. But when you meet the true and living God, everyone in the Bible who meets the true and living God has a vision of the true and living God is destroyed by it. Moses at the burning bush. This ground is holy ground. You can't wear sandals. are destroyed by it. Isaiah chapter 6 is given a vision of God in the temple. Holy, holy, holy. and And he says, he falls down face and he says, I am ruined. For I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the Lord. Peter, the Apostle, sees Jesus transfigured and he is speechless. He is not enveloped in warmth. He is terrified. John, the Apostle, in the first chapter of Revelation, sees the risen Lord Jesus in all his glory. Face shining like the sun and he falls down as though dead before the Alpha and the Omega. Why is Sinai so terrifying? Because when you come to the true and living God, uncovered, Without the blood of Jesus to cleanse you, it will destroy you. Be afraid. Be very afraid. Because our God is a consuming fire. What hope for sinners? The blood of Jesus. Our only hope. And so this author brings his sermon to an end and says, verse 25... 
See to it, therefore, that you don't refuse him who speaks. Listen when he speaks. Because outside the blood of Jesus, outside the grace that's found in Jesus, there is no hope. This is heaven and hell. Do not drift. And so, brothers and sisters, let me talk to you, those of you who have put yourself in the hands of Jesus. Can I urge you again tonight to take heed to your life? Take stock on where you're at. Is it, the pos- is it possible that um, there are things growing up in your life that are starting to distract you from the things of Jesus? Take hold of you, draw you aside from listening to the better word that's found in Jesus? Are there habits and practices that are drawing you aside? Is, there a, is the way you're using the internet, the sites you're going to, the things you're looking at, are they beginning to offend your God and you know it and distract you and stop you praying because you're carrying the guilt? Are these things growing up in your heart that you need to deal with? Deal with it. Deal with it. Fight. Don't drift because this bitter root will grow and like Esau, you will sell your birthright eternally for a bowl of whatever you see online. Deal with it. Is there a relationship that's going, that's becoming offensive to God? Uh, You're in a relationship, boy, and, and you're beginning to You're beginning to press the boundaries. You're sexually involved in a way that you ought not. Stop it. Stop it. It will undo your life with God. Don't let a bitter root grow up. You'll find yourself in a few years' time uh, more and more distant from the things of God and then telling yourself that the things of God don't matter that much. There's a Mount Sinai, will really be okay, I'll be okay. You'll tell yourself these things because sin is deceptive. Our own sense of ourselves is deceptive. We tell ourselves all kinds of lies. Fight to listen to the word of God who speaks to you. Don't refuse him. Keep soft to him. Is it that you find yourself not getting to church as often as you might? There are other things that come up and you've got these things and you still believe in Jesus and you still don't kid yourself. A bitter root that will grow up and cause trouble will defile you. You will drift. Pay attention to your spiritual life. Because heaven and hell are at stake. But let me not finish with fear. Let me finish with confidence. That whilst ever you heed the voice of Jesus, the blood that speaks a better word, Whilst ever you cling to him and look to him, you are safe. You are seated in the heavenlies. You are secure in the hand of God. You can trust him. Because the sinless saviour died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God, the just, was satisfied to look on him and pardon me. What a great word. Make it your life's ambition to listen to that word and heed that word and pay attention to that word as long as it's called today. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we do ask, please, that you might help us pay attention to that beautiful and wonderful word, the blood of Jesus that speaks to us, that we might be found every day, for the rest of our days, secure in your hand. Please help us um, pay attention to those things that might grow up in our life to distract us, uh, to hinder and tangle us, the sin that so easily entangles and other things that hinder. Please, um, please help us fight them. Uh, Lord, we confess uh, these things are often so addictive and so difficult. And we, we know that with you there is always forgiveness. Every day your mercies are new. Please don't let our guilt about these things cause us to run from you rather than to run to you. But please let us run to you and find your mercy and strength and grace to continue to fight and come out of these things refreshed and new as you intend for us. Help us make strong decisions by your Holy Spirit to stand firm in the things of Christ, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.